when I was about nine or 10, I remember hearing that Spielberg had made a short film before uh, whatever it was, age nine or something. And, and my first, my initial thought was, oh, I'm already behind. Hi, this is writer-director Sean Durkin, and you're listening to My Life in Movies. You sent us a, a list of some movies that have been particularly inspiring to you, and we're going to go through them in chronological order and get to know you a little bit better. So why don't we start with your earliest childhood movie memory? So I don't have a clear first screening sort of memory, but in my house as a kid, there was a group of movies that were just on repeat that I'd watch with my dad and my sister. And they were Back to the Future, Beetlejuice, Big Trouble in Little China, Jaws. But I think the one that made the biggest impact was The Goonies. And what made that so significant for you? I think the thing that captured me first was the sense of place and setting. Mm. I was living in England at the time, living in the countryside. And so there was, you know, a lot of my childhood memories are in fog and rain. I think texturally there was like this, this feel to it that was quite cozy and felt uh, something I recognized. You know, I think about the Goonies and I think about that that gang of friends and I'm curious about your own life and if you had a group of friends that were similar or, or dissimilar to uh, the friends in the, the Goonies. Yeah, I had a really good group of friends at that point in my life, but we all lived pretty far apart. We were in, everything was a drive. And so I think I really longed for that neighborhood. But when, when friends would come over, we'd certainly get on our bikes and go out into the fields and into the woods and, you know, create this, you know, sense of adventure as much as, as much as we could. I think one of the things that captured me most about the Goonies is the moment where they dropped through the floor. Something about that just captured my imagination like nothing else. And that sense of just dropping into something unknown and, and seeing what followed, I, I think it just made such an impact on my imagination. And this early on, did you have any inkling that you wanted to become a filmmaker yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember why or when, but I, I certainly think it was from watching this and, and Back to the Future in particular. Mm. I just loved stories and I used to get home from school and write a story almost every day to write these like one or two page stories and do a drawing to go with it. Mm. And I'm a terrible drawer, always have been, but <laughs> I, I had no, no artistic ability in that sense. But I would just, I would just do these little sketches and color. And, and I had this, this file of hundreds of stories by the time I was 10. And I just kind of knew it's what I wanted to do. I had this real like drive and ambition that was almost subconscious. But saying you want to be a filmmaker is a, a really difficult thing. It was a very difficult thing back then. I think mm -hmm. even an idea of a career in art in the late 80s was really tricky, at least in the world I was in. And so I knew it, but I kind of kept it to myself a little bit. I think that feeling um, that this sort of dream I had to make movies was pushed even further down as I got older. Tell me a little bit about you as a teenager now in New York City, coming from England, which, as you previously described as being more or less kind of more rural. Um, I mean, what was going on for you as a teenager in, in New York? 
I very quickly was out exploring the city alone with my friends at a very young age. And so I think in that, I grew up quite fast. And I don't have real memories of consuming films in my teens in the same way I did as a kid. And so the film moment that I'm picking for this actually happened when I was about 12. I may have been 13, but I think I was only 12. And uh, it's when I saw The Shining for the first time. I would say it was the most influential and important moment of, of my cinema-going experience and, and, and cinema-going life. Do you have any recollections of that first viewing? My friend, um, his name was Adam Sobel, he invited me to his house and it was downtown and I'd never been downtown. I don't think I'd ever been below 34th street at this point. Mm-hmm. I went down to his house and we went to St. Mark's place. It was the first time I'd ever been to St. Mark's. We got harassed by an older kid and almost mugged and chased. And we ran away from him and just had this like uh, real like childhood introduction to, to downtown New York. And I remember we got back to his house and he also had an older brother who uh, had a copy of The Shining. And I remember going up to this like living room. It was kind of in an attic and he was like, we're going to watch this. This will blow your mind. And I think I think I was kind of primed for it at the time because I loved scary stories. I love ghost stories. Another part of my childhood was my, my mother and I would go walking in like in Hampstead Heath in North London on like foggy mornings and she would kind of tell ghost stories and, and, and she'd let me watch anything. And, and, and I was allowed to watch anything except Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm curious a little bit about how your relationship with your mom kind of primed the pump for you with The Shining. Like, was she always interested in ghost stories or was this? Yeah. I mean, she used to tell me the story of Psycho before I saw Psycho. She loves scary stories. And I think I love being afraid. And now I have a four-year-old daughter and I see the same. Like, she loves to be afraid and she loves to come to me for comfort when she's afraid. And I recognize that in in myself. And I think of of all the art forms, the great attribute of cinema that nothing else can do is create fear. There's a visceral creation that comes with fear that hits you in your solar plexus. And it's a beautiful thing to explore, I think. And so I remember this day and sitting down and watching it. And it was just, um, I had ne- obviously never seen anything like it because there is nothing like it. Mm-hmm. But for a 12 year old, it just completely shaped me, shaped my imagination. It was the all encompassing feeling that the film creates that I think was the first time I became aware of what direction was. And also seeing something iconic before understanding something that something could be iconic. I'm curious about what you said that the look of the film made you aware of what a director did. Yeah, I think so. And the camera movement, I think the camera movement, the helicopter shot going up the mountain to the steady cams to the very jarring static shot of the elevator blood, you know, it's, it's just being in it and feeling it on every sensory level. It was like being covered in a blanket for the first time in a way I didn't know possible this violent father figure like was that at all threatening to you like did any of that put you off no it felt truthful to me there's a character truth to it which is that it's a family trying to start over when they haven't done anything to deal with the real problems within the family and when she's talking about how long it's been since he's drank 
it's like he hasn't drank. I can't remember. Is it six months or six weeks or something? He's been sober. He hasn't had any alcohol in the five months. It's just, but it's like a, you know, it's not six years. It's like a, it's a very short amount of time. And she just goes along with it. And she doesn't want to look at the real problems there. And he doesn't want to look at the real problems there. And it's this sort of plastering over the real cracks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's at the, the core of all real family drama in life. You can't just plaster over the cracks. You got to dig in and find the core of what's really going wrong, which is absolutely what I'm trying to do in my work and look at in my characters. And I think that's probably why The Shining feels so truthful, even though it's, it is what it is, a big, scary movie. You know what I mean? Like it's this real character core at the heart of this relationship. It's all over Jack Nicholson's face after that amazing helicopter shot. We're in the car and the kids bopping around the back and Shelley Duvall is all excited for this trip and you could just see the resentment in this guy's face staring deadly just straight forward at this windy road. In hindsight, it totally makes me think of everything you're discussing. It's it's a really interesting human element to it that is really universal and something I think is really natural, which is, oh, if we just move on and start fresh, move on and start fresh. I think it's a real natural desire. But, you know, wherever you go, there you are. You can't really just start fresh. You can start fresh and do other things to help yourself along or to help your family along. But, but you can't just move. I, I have to ask. I mean, that's so, uh, you know, it seems like you've moved several times. Yeah. Was this something that was registering for you, like on a personal level? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. We moved all the time when I was a kid. And there were small moves and there were big moves. And it's interesting creating this list because I think a, a lot of the most formative viewing moments happened just after one of the major moves. Like this one was, I was 11 and moved to New York and within a year saw The Shining. So while I wouldn't have been conscious of these things, I think I was certainly starting to to understand them on a you know subconscious human level. And you mentioned you didn't see too many movies actually in your teenage years. You know, I, I have a few, like a few really great movie memories from that time. Like I remember like we'd be skating and we'd stop and, you know, see, I remember seeing 12 monkeys in that time. I remember seeing seven with my dad at that time. Like there were a few things. And so it, it was very much alive. And I started, and I started to write short fiction at the time too. I mean, I'd always written stories, but I, I was kind of keeping, keeping that alive again, quietly, mm. still quietly. Yeah. Still simmering under the surface. Yeah. And then, and then I, w- I went, I went to this college in upstate New York called Hobart College, and I, I played soccer there, and and I went to play soccer, and it, it didn't really work out. And it, it sort of that's where I took the step to actually major in photography and writing. It was almost like reaching this moment where I was like, okay, I can no longer run from this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it, and I'm gonna start saying that I do it, and I'm gonna start saying out loud that I want to do it. Mm. My father really, really wanted me to be an architect. And I think, I think it's part of probably why I kept this filmmaking dream to myself, not to myself completely, but I did, wasn't too vocal about it. And the funny thing is he was so supportive of it, but at the same time, he just felt, he was like, become an architect. It's a basis for life. He had this whole theory about if you're an architect, you, you understand how to build anything and then you can go off and do something else. But I just knew to be an architect, I had to have the passion for it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I knew I didn't have the passion for it. I knew my passion was in filmmaking. So in this conversation with him, it was like this pressing moment where I had to say like, no, this is my passion. And the funny thing is, is that one of the first things he said, he was like, well, if you want to be a filmmaker, you got to watch Chinatown. <laughs> and he's right. 
Maybe we could transition into NYU at this period, yeah. how you got into that program and, and if there's a movie or two from this period that we should highlight. Yeah, so I, I was able to transfer into NYU, which never would have happened applying out of high school because I didn't have the SAT scores for it. Um, being, being able to transfer was was the only way I could get in. And I think I was, you know, I was starting to say I wanted to be a director. I couldn't quite say it out loud yet. Mm -hmm. When I started at NYU, I said I was going to be a cinematographer because that just felt I had a photography background. Um, my fiction writing in college was not met with much praise. <laughs> um, I had a lovely writing teacher who was very supportive, but ultimately was like, eh, I don't know if you, you know, I was like, seriously, do you think I can make a career of this? And she was like, I don't think so. What was the major complaint? Um, it, it was, it was, I don't know. I, I, maybe it was story. It was, uh, and I think, I think it's still something I struggle with is how to, how to execute a, a story in the sense. Like I always think about character first and I always think about what the character does and that doesn't always make a story or I think about a place and right. an event unfold unfolding, but I never, I don't understand three act structure. <laughs> I don't understand uh, I, there's so many basic things I don't understand. My wife's a writer and, and she tries to explain it to me. I'm just like, I don't, I just don't get it. I don't know why. Uh, there's just these very basic principles I don't get. And I think when I was writing short fiction, that came across. So I was at, I was at NYU and I thought I'd, you know, be a cinematographer and we were shooting, I was in the sight and sound class and I had a wonderful teacher named Wendy Bednars. And it was almost a continuation of what I started in my previous school, but, but this was a deeper dive into things I would have just never been exposed to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we were shooting films and watching films and I just became a full student of cinema. And Wendy would just show us clips of things. Um, I mean, there's so much in this period, but I think the first thing that she showed that just like rocked my world was, uh, was I saw some clips from Hanukkah and the first Michael Hanukkah film she showed was Funny Games. And then I went to the NYU library, which was an amazing collection of movies, most of which on VHS. And you just go and you could take out anything and, you know, get a little cubicle with one of those tiny little screens and VHS built into the TV. So I went and just started exploring Michael Haneke's work. And it was seeing Code Unknown for the first time that just blew my mind. Code Unknown is an, is an interesting one to be the one that first grabbed you. Yeah. I'm kind of curious why out of the collected works, that one stuck out for you. I had just never seen anything like it. I know now, and as I studied film, I understood the history behind it and sort of how Code Unknown came to be in a sense of film history. But at the time, I'd just never seen anything like it. So I'd never seen long takes. I had never seen multiple storylines, cuts to black in the middle of dialogue. Mm -hmm. It just felt very radical and it felt very free. But at the same time, it's done with almost an anti-style. And at the time at NYU... It felt like everyone was trying to be the next Wes Anderson. Oh my God! I wrote a hit play! And I love Wes Anderson, but I knew I wasn't that, and I didn't want to be that, and, and the other person was Fincher. You know, it was a lot of obsession with camera movement and being extreme. And here's this movie that I'm seeing for the first time that is the opposite of these things in this way that I guess speaks to me and it helped me find what my version of that would be. And so instead of doing all these tricks or finding the style, 
I knew that style wasn't in me. And so I was seeing something that had a less style and that felt like, oh, that can, that can be your style, you know? And, and I wasn't even thinking in terms of style that consciously, but I now looking back, analyzing it, I think that's a part of what, what was happening there. Was there any pragmatic decision at all with any of this? Because, and maybe not, but like with David Fincher, you know, you're seeing a lot of professional cinema thrown in your face, you know, uh, that is hard to replicate on a smaller level, especially probably at the time. But, you know, Henneke or some of the more, you know, formalist um, movies that influenced you, those could be done economically. It's exactly it. That was exactly it. We were still at a time where kids were spending 80 grand on their student short films and we didn't have that option. And Antonio Campos and I and Josh Mond, we'd started our company around this time. And Antonio and I made a short film called Buy It Now, which I was a cinematographer and he wrote and directed. And it's about a girl who sells her virginity on eBay. And this is in 2004. Antonio at the time was really influenced by Bergman and by Fassbender. And when I saw Code Unknown, the first thing I did was call Antonio and I said, get down here. And I called him to the library to watch this. And we watched the scene of Julia Binoche on the Metro towards the end of the film where she's being harassed. It, it did exactly that. Like, how do we make films that are emotionally truthful, have great performance that we can do for money, no money because we didn't have the option. And Hanukkah feels, especially could unknown, it feels like he's out in the street shooting real life with real elegance and great performances and absolute truth with every piece of clothing, every performance. There's a scene, a few scenes into that film where the guy gets a phone call and he's driving the car. Oui? Comment? And you hear the whole conversation and then he hangs up and then you realize he's a taxi driver. You know, that is just the information was in every single scene is given to you in an order that you just don't expect it. And so it was all this kind of how to be radical, how to push boundaries without having, you know, <laughs> excessive color correction and cameras that drop down from buildings and dolly through windows. I don't know. When I wrote the script for Martha, I think it was the first time I was writing something that I just deeply cared about. And as I started to show the script, it was clear that that got a response. So it was the first time that I had a piece of writing people actually responded to. And that was really good for my confidence. Um, and then it got into the Sundance Lab, which was a life-changing experience. And then I went on to to make the film. Were, were you watching movies around this time for inspiration? Yeah. So the, the single biggest influence on Martha and, you know, maybe on everything, I don't, I don't know if maybe more than The Shining, is Rosemary's Baby. After I got out of school, I was still very much studying films. I mean, Antonio and I would go to Film Forum all the time. I mean, it was like, I feel like I lived at Film Forum between 2007 and 2011. Uh, you know, it's my favorite cinema in the world. And so they were showing Rosemary's Baby sometime around then on 35. I'd never seen it on 35. And I went by myself and I love seeing movies by myself. <laughs> and I'd seen it before. I loved it. But... It was like seeing it for the first time, understanding film and understanding direction. And I remember noticing 
in the the first scene when they get to the building, they get to Dakota and they go up in the elevator and the guy's talking about the building and the division of the apartment and, and he's making these hand gestures and it's behind the two of them and Cassavetes turns to her and just does this little imitated hand gesture and I'd never seen it before. And I'd seen the movie so many times, but I'd never seen that. And that kind of flicked a switch in my brain. And I think in that screen, I noticed everything for the first time of that detail and that playfulness between them as a couple and the tone and the humor and again, the paranoia and the fear and how those things could be all blended up into this truly original vision um, was just astounding to me. And then it just became my go-to for every lesson about camera move and direction and, and the small things too. Like I think my favorite scene of any film of all time is after they go over to Roman and Minnie's house for dinner for the first time. And Minnie's doing dishes and Rosemary is behind her and she wants to help, but Minnie won't really let her. Would you like me to wash and you can wipe for a while? Oh, no, that's fine, dear. There's this really simple dolly. It's like a tiny move-in. And it just makes you feel Rosemary's isolation in life, I think. And it's such a simple thing, and they're not talking about anything. And she just looks over her shoulder, and it cuts to the shot down the hallway of the empty doorway. And you just see the cigar smoke or cigarette smoke, whatever it is, puffing. in the. And, and those two shots are just, uh, that is direction to me. Like, that is... That's the moment where he sells his soul to the devil and they come up with his agreement and we don't get to see it. All we see is this empty doorway with this smoke. And it probably took me seeing the movie five times to realize that that's the precise moment and that's why we're seeing it this way. And, and it, so it was in the screening, I watched this movie at this point in time where I picked up those things and I understood those things. It's interesting how you're, you're saying that you have some difficulty understanding traditional three-act structure or getting on board for it. And here's an example where that kind of plot point is obscured or yeah. it's focused mostly on the characters and really making the plot point invisible. Exactly. And that's, I just love that. And I, I don't know why I love it, but I do. I love, I love, it's like being in another room while the important thing you're supposed to be seeing is happening off screen. I and mean, that just feels like that's filmmaking to me. That's crafting a unique experience. And it's hard, it's hard to remember the first time I saw it. Like I, I would love to, someone to watch that movie for the first time and say, do you know if this is really happening or not? Yeah. Is her theory real? And, and I think in that screening, I remembered feeling like, oh, you really don't know for sure. You don't know if it's happening. So there's two, just a lesson in perspective. And it's so singular in that perspective, yet gives you clues. You know, the character rebellion. I mean, Rosemary is rebelling. Everyone is telling her she's wrong and she is rebelling against everyone around her. Dr. Hill, there are plots against people, aren't there? Yes, I suppose there are. Well, there's one against me and my baby. So there's a spirit to it and, and, and sort of like The Shining, there's also a truth within a relationship. If you boil it down, it's just about a relationship where a couple are not being truthful. I look awful. It's that haircut that looks awful. If you want the truth, honey, that's the worst mistake you ever made. After Martha, I got an opportunity to work with Tony Grissoni on a four-part miniseries called Southcliff. And Peter Carlton is the producer. We were at CAM with Martha and he came to me and said, um, I've got this project. It's a ways off, but I just saw Martha and I think you'd be perfect for it. I think it had like 90 speaking roles or something. I mean, it was just insane. It was epic, but they had already set the place. They knew exactly, Tony knew exactly where he wanted it to be set. And so I agreed to do it. And I, and I just kind of picked up and, and, and went for it, this epic undertaking. And, and so 
I'm there living in England again and really remembering on a sensory level, like what it felt like. I, I remember there was like a smell in the air that was like this crisp autumn English air. And I was just like, I haven't had that since I was a kid. Like I know it. And I just knew the place and I knew the feel. And so I was like fully immersed in this revisiting of place. And, and we started shooting and we're getting dailies back. And my producer comes to me and he's like, He's so happy with the footage and he can't believe what we're doing. He's so excited. And he's like, I feel like I'm watching Alan Clark. And I was like, who's Alan Clark? And then they all start making fun of me because I don't know who Alan Clark is and he's their hero. And at the time, it wasn't that easy to get. Like Peter had a box set of Made in Britain, Scum, The Firm and Elephant. And it was a French DVD box set and he brought it over on a Saturday that we had off. And I just, I think I might've watched three of them in one day, like, you know, <laughs> shooting six day weeks. And I, I just couldn't believe I'd never seen it. It was like watching a truthful moment in a specific place in time. And that is Alan Clark. I mean, he, he covers all of these corners of English life and each one is done with an absolute need to capture truth. And that doesn't always mean natural. You know, it gets silly, it gets crazy, it gets violent, it gets, it, it's everything. And and it's sort of, sort of the 70s American thing too, like that Altman has and Hal Ashby has. Is they're just a bit more loose and everything's not so perfect. And I feel sometimes like this weight to be perfect with the way that everything is done nowadays. And, and it just felt like he was making constantly and everything was so he wasn't afraid to fail and some of the stuff is just crazy and out there and then you just within that there's just these absolute masterpieces like road and elephant and the firm those films have a marvelous use of kind of coming back to the shining of, of the steady cam work and yeah. just keeping the pace and the tension so strong yeah i mean i think by the time he gets to elephant and to the firm the steady cam work is is much more pristine but in road it's quite it's he's still figuring it out like he's he's using it in the house and that um the scene with david Dulles, like mm-hmm. he's using it in this way where you just i don't think once he figured out how to use it he would you know it was a bit still loose and a bit awkward. And so you get to see live essentially his relationship with the steady cam. And then in the same film, he uses it in what is my absolute favorite speech in any movie ever, which is Leslie Sharp's walking rant that it just like brings me to tears every single time and captures where she's talking about her husband. Yeah. And just captures a time and a place and an expectation that is so real. I'd cry, but I don't think tears would come. And there's nothing worse than an empty cry. It's like choking. Why do we do it? Why do I stay? Why the why, why? Oh, you can cover yourself in questions, but you're none the wiser because you're too tired to answer. You just feel the pavement and you just feel the place and you feel the oppression of it and you just feel that there is no escape for this person. So there's an example of like this precise steady cam and just used to the absolute, the best way to give the right energy to that. It allows her to walk. It allows her to let that steam out. Jumping forward, if there's a recent movie memory that made a big impact on you. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I moved a lot and I had maybe three or four times in my life where I had an absolute life reset. And in 2014, I had left New York. I had um, recently gotten divorced. I had um, uh, 
basically boiled my life down to a duffel bag. I'm not even, I'm not kidding. Like it was, I was living out of a duffel bag and I went back to London and I was starting to write the nest. This would be our fourth move in 10 Turn years. Backwards, look forwards, this is a fresh start. This was our fresh start. This was our permanent move, remember? I was searching for movies and inspiration and I had a meeting with a producer in England named Jeremy Thomas and I was telling him about this film that I was writing and he's like, well, you must see Shoot the Moon. I was like, I'd never even heard of Shoot the Moon. What's Shoot the Moon? And I went home from the meeting and laid in bed and watched it on my laptop. And I was so blown away and so moved. To me, it's it's the family drama. It is the one. It is the, it is the most perfect family drama. It's atmosphere without going into genre or paranoia. Mm -hmm. It's a sense of place, that house, this atmosphere, and then the kids. I mean, the kids just in one scene of her trying to do her makeup. How do I look? Like a hooker. No, you look beautiful. You don't look anything like a hooker. See, I don't look anything like a hooker. What's a hooker? It was just this beautiful family, the chaos of family and the love of family and the, and the love that's within this family, even though they're going through this breakup and, and, and then to explore that relationship and, you know, this brand of masculinity that he has that I just find so absurd and hilarious. You know, this sense of like, even though he's caused all this, it's still all his. And it feels difficult and truthful, but never too much, never heavy. And I think it's just a film that's just got so much love and complication in it. Oh, I saw it fairly recently as well. And some aspects that I really loved was like how much further the movie would push it beyond my expectations for it. It feels like straight out of The Shining. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and again, you're right. It's, it is, it's, it's the, the father who becomes the, the danger and physically breaking into the house. It's just, it's, it's stunning. And then to go where it goes at the end, the way the barbecue is and the music that's playing, this, you know, it's like an Eagle song and a Bob Seger song. And it just like, sets this calm like it taps somewhere into my psyche of like a uh, what a barbecue felt like from my childhood once it's a corn thanks i love corn with butter on it what do i get kiss you know it just like does this beautiful thing to calm you right before it goes to this place of madness but absolute truth Thank you so much for speaking with us, Sean. It's it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. This series was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. 